Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. And Linkshus, the place where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Sook Sook. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? I'm great. It's a lovely night in Beijing. You're living in Beijing. So yes. I'm... I have been talking about Analyze Asia. We always talk about the business, the technology, but I haven't talked a lot about media in Asia. So who have I invited here? Her name is Tan Siok Siok. She has done a lot of interesting documentaries for Discovery Networks. And now she's a CEO of a company called Kinetic One. But her claim to fame is a documentary that was totally crowdsourced called Twittermentary. So Siok Siok, you want to tell me a little bit about your career? <laughs> My career? My career actually started in Singapore, where I was a journalist with MediaCorp. But what's interesting about the career is that I actually started off making Chinese programs. So was, my first job was a Chinese current affairs producer for Channel 8 in MediaCorp. And then my next job was as a, a, a supervising producer for Discovery Networks in Asia, based out of Singapore, but doing a lot of projects across Asia especially in China and Taiwan. So I started off as a TV producer, and then in the past five years or so, as they would like to say in the tech community, I pivoted and uh, dropped TV altogether, started making independent films, but at the same time also launched a, a startup in China that's focused on, on building uh, multiple channels online across the Chinese internet. So before that, when were you in China then? I started working on the discovery projects in China in 2004. Mm. And around the year before the Olympics, I started exploring the possibility of coming to, to China. So I actually did a lecturing stint for one semester in, at the Beijing Film Academy where I made a documentary with my students uh, about the upcoming, then upcoming Beijing Olympics. But I think at that time, I was really quite unsure about whether there's something for me to do in China. But at the same time, because my whole career has been so focused on Chinese language programming, bilingual programming, and also very focused on China. So I was very curious to find out what it would be like to actually be based out of China and be completely immersed in the culture here. So I've been, I think for the first two or three years I traveled, split my time between Singapore and China. And for the past five years, I've been mostly based in Beijing, where I run my company. And how is the filmmaking industry in China in 2004 as compared to maybe now? I think that because I'm a documentary maker, mainly I'm not a feature filmmaker, so I think... I have a very different view of the filmmaking industry because I think right now, if you're talking about the feature film industry, definitely in the past two years, the local film industry has really blossomed in terms of the, the box office or local films has really been booming. You know, So this past summer has been a great summer for Chinese made-in-China films, Chinese films. I work in documentaries, so I always feel that it's not a very mainstream perspective on the Chinese filmmaking industry because I think documentary makers never make money usually. I think what is interesting for me is obviously the growing sophistication of the film industry, especially in terms of being able to have their own hits 
And I think being able to, I think also because China is becoming the, it's currently the second largest box office market in the world outside of uh, Hollywood, the US, and will soon most likely become the number one box office market in the world. And the number of movie screens in China is still increasing exponentially. So I think what, what I see in the past years is really this whole shift. You know, I think really that China has become a force to reckon with in terms of soft, soft culture. And in terms of between Hollywood and China, I think now a lot of Hollywood producers, a lot of people in LA are really trying to come to China, if only because of a certain romantic kind of yearning you know, the, 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 the urge to go east. So I think that's quite fascinating from where I sit. So it's getting interesting. In fact, I remember that Alibaba has recently launched a movie studio as well. So you're even having tech companies getting involved into the filmmaking industry. But Yeah, I think that in technology and tech money has become a very important influence in the Chinese film industry. There's Alibaba. Uh, but there's also the Chinese video video platforms like Le TV and Youku getting into film as well. That will be a very major factor in terms of how the film industry grows and evolves. I wanted to sort of talk about your early project, Boomtown, mm. which is basically the story about Beijing 2008 Olympics. I mean, mm. in, it was kind of started as a project with your students, right? How do you manage to capture Beijing to show to the rest of the world and what is the difference between the Beijing before 2008 and after 2008? I feel that I think for those who know me well, they will know that almost every creative project of mine is a kind of a game that I set up with myself. So I always set up the a little exercise, a creative exercise and I have certain rules to and usually I'm trying, I, I think I'm, I'm like you, Bernard, because you, I think for you, you're always finding the next problem to solve. So I think for me, I'm always trying to solve a problem. And, and I think for Boomtown Beijing, I had just come out of my job at Discovery and I was trying to find out what I had learned as an executive producer working with so many directors across Asia. So I deliberately made this film where there are a lot of narrative rules so, for example, I wanted it to be, I wanted Beijing to, the main, to be a main character in the film. I wanted to have multiple uh, lead characters, but the, they are linked together by their common dream about the Olympics. I think what is very interesting and I think is something that people don't really pick up is because I think a lot of all the dreams are not fulfilled in the film. <laughs> Nobody, there's a little boy who wants to be a, become a torchbearer for the Beijing Olympics. There's a road sweeper who wants to kind of perform. And none of them really achieved their dreams. And I think it's really looking at common people, ordinary people, and how they are trying to relate and link to their lives to this grand epic narrative of the Beijing Olympics. I think the Olympics was a great turning point in the city because I think in the lead up to the Olympics there was so much development that was happening and building that was happening that Beijing was forever transformed because of the Olympics. I think it became really fully recognized as a a great city, one of the great cities of the world. I think also in terms of infrastructure, 
building、uh, logistics, all sorts of capab- capabilities. Beijing also quickly got ready and and delivered on the Beijing Olympics. I think what was very challenging, I think, I think in terms of making the film, was really the fact that I was making it with my students, so they are not real professional producers or or anything like that. And I think it was quite difficult to find people who are willing to share their real sentiments about the event. So you know, because I I think people are quite wary of really saying what they feel、uh, about something as important to the country as the Beijing Olympics. So it's hard to really capture.、Um, I think also because it's such a grand event, it always feels like you can't really capture it. You know, in terms of Everything you capture must be only a facet or fragment of that historical moment. But、um, it it was a worthwhile exercise. I, I I don't know if it's a great film, but I think it was a it was a little creative exercise, and I I learned a lot from it. I think most of all, I think I learned a lot about social media accidentally, because when I first started working on the film, I had just gotten on social media, including Twitter. And Facebook, and that was before it became blocked in China, and so I was kind of learning about social media. But one of the things that I found very fascinating about Boomtown Beijing was not actually the production of the film, but actually about how my friends on Twitter on and Facebook spontaneously offered to help me to、uh, to market the film. My first interview about the film was on a podcast, incidentally. Uh, back in two o o seven, December two o seven, one of my Twitter friends asked to interview me.、Uh, so the first few interviews were podcast interviews and blog interviews, but it soon crossed over to the mainstream media. And also the other thing that I was very fascinated by, which in part led to the making of Twitter Mentry,、mm-hmm. which is my crowdsourced film about Twitter, was that I found that the people who were the most enthusiastic fans of the film. Were my social media friends,、mm-hmm. you know, and I think back then in two o eight, I was still of the mindset that internet friends are not real friends. <laughs> you know, you don't expect your internet friends to do anything for you, real, in real sense. But I really was very touched by how much people came, went out of their way to help me market the film, get the film seen. Ah,、uh, you know, they blogged about it. They they did podcasts about it. They. Organized screenings, introduce me to people, and it's just amazing. And I think because of that, that experience, I became quite fascinated by the whole question of whether the connections we make online,、uh, through social media, on Twitter, Facebook, or any other platform, what do they mean, and how our humanity and how we connect has been transformed by social media. I think that's why I did my next. Creative exercise, which was to crowdsource the a、Twitter. film about Twitter. Right, that takes you to the U.S. But before that,、yeah. eventually, what happened to Boomtown? Did it get distributed into mainstream media? I think Boomtown made Beijing got a lot of mainstream media coverage, so it was actually covered on a lot of TV and obviously papers, newspapers from Straits Times to South China Morning Post to. CNN to Phoenix TV. Yeah, I remember、uh, it did, reading it in the BBC. Actually, that was how I got to know about、oh, hometown. Yeah, it did get it did get、uh, distribution. I think it went on a couple of web platforms, video on demand platforms. One of which is called Snack Films, which is a 
of platform for mainly for documentaries. I think it got a lot more attention than I expected because you need to realize that I made this film as a school project. And when uh, my social, friends on social media started interviewing me, I was actually quite surprised because there were so many films about the Olympics around that time. And uh, so I think it got more attention than I thought I expected. So it was a nice surprise in that way. Mm. Culturally, China is very conservative and people don't really want to air their thoughts. And then subsequently, you move to your second project, which is Twittermentary, which is a crowdsourced mm. film. And that brought you to the US. So mm. I guess I want to sort of start from the story because I think we did the same interview about Twittermentary when it was started <laughs> in my last podcast called This Week in Asia. So mm. now we're going to retrace it back three, four years later. And then mm. I'm going to now ask you, how did you get Twittermentary? the film to be made? And how did it get started, actually? I think it started with me. I think for me, I always have a list of projects that I like to make. I kind of have this little notebook. It used to be a notebook, and now it's like a folder on Evernote or something where I keep a list of projects that I like to make. And I think I kind of thought that it would be very interesting to make a film about Twitter. But as a filmmaker, I also knew that it was a very difficult project to make. Because it's very hard to, to make the experience real to people who at that time did not know what Twitter was and why some people were so obsessed with it. You need to remember that this was like 2009. You know, Twitter had just started entering the mainstream. The celebrities just started getting onto Twitter. So I knew it was very hard to make as a watchable film. I mean, I could take a bunch of screenshots of tweets and interview a lot of experts, but that doesn't really convey the sense of the cultural impact of Twitter. And then one, somehow one day, I think in the, over the summer of 2009, I had this idea that if I were to crowdsource it, then maybe I can c- capture the zeitgeist. Because it, it really shows that the, the platform is what the people made of it. And that it's really about people coming together uh, to make something happen. And people who are neighbors, not in the conventional sense of living next door to each other, but rather in the sense of having a shared interest. So, for example, you and I are neighbors because we have shared interests in technology, innovation, and Singapore, and many other things. So, I think I, I, I had this idea of crowdsourcing it, and I think also it was a very good excuse for not making a comprehensive film. Because if I crowdsource it, then I can say, oh, it happened to be who, these were the people who took part in the crowdsourcing, right? <laughs> because it's actually very difficult to do a 360-degree uh, capture of Twitter, even at that point in 2009. I, I think I wanted to make a film that in itself, would. If I thought to myself that if I succeed in making this film, it would prove that Twitter actually works. Because everything in the film, from the story ideas to... The, the production and filming, the entire film crew, the screenings, the post-production were, were all enabled and made possible by people on Twitter. So in fact, the entire production crew were volunteers who, who got to know about the project on Twitter and put up their hands and say, I'd love to help with graphic design or, or sound mix or production and things like that. So, so it's quite a to me, in my mind, looking back now, I, I think it's a miracle 
but it actually managed to happen in that way. Well, you did a road trip in the U.S. from New York to San Francisco, and in between, you talk, you capture a few interesting stories. I mean, I watched Pidamentary. I think I'm, I was in one of the first screenings watching it and then there was two stories that actually captured my heart in the in 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 the way how you tell the story one of them was the stockbroker in chicago where mm. he was using twitter as a form to communicate to his clients about the rise and fall of stocks and to give him the transaction to the permission to make transactions and then the other the story of the homeless lady so was how how long did this actually take and how do you capture those stories and film it and edit it into the documentary itself? I think the entire process of making the film from really announcing the project to when I finished all the screenings were probably three years. Basically, I started working on it May, June 2009, finished my, the round of screenings in June June, July 2012. We mentioned the two stories. Uh, one is a homeless story and the other one is a stockbroker story. And What's interesting about the film was that I think to me, if you were to crowdsource a film, there would really be no point in doing so if you end up with the expected stories. So I think the homeless story for me is one of the important things that separate the film from other films about Twitter. And it happened quite simply because of the crowdsourcing. I was traveling overnight from New York to Chicago and we were tweeting we're sending out tweets in real time asking for story suggestions someone who's a homeless rights advocate called Mark Horvath uh, called us up on the phone seeing our tweets and said that uh, when you get to Chicago you have to interview this lady called Anne-Marie and she's a great Twitter story and that's why we ended up finding the homeless lady and in fact our whole 36 hours in Chicago were all curated by the Twitter people in Chicago. You know, we met them at a social media party the first night we landed in Chicago and they just kind of coordinated everything for for us. So we just were directed to the stock exchange, interviewed the stockbroker, and then we went to interview the homeless lady. I think the reason why the homeless story is important to me was because I was very interested I think, to me, the film is not so much about technology or social media, but rather about the sociological impact of technology. So I was very interested in the homeless story because it was a very extreme case of how the social media transformed your your identity. And to me, I was fascinated by a question of if I were homeless, if, if a person was homeless, compared to if a person was homeless and had 500 fans or 1,000 fans on Twitter, is there any difference in terms of identity or the way the person represents themselves to the world? And I think in the case of Anne-Marie, there was a difference. In fact, gradually as she became more and more well-known on Twitter, had more friends and fans, uh, I think her whole life was changed. And I was also very moved by a single thing that happened because what happened was we met her in Chicago, interviewed her, and decided to take her to Los Angeles where we were attending a Twitter conference. And we set up an opportunity for her to speak at a conference about being homeless and being on Twitter. And one of the things that moved me the most in the whole entire three years of making the Twitter film was 
I noticed that after we we part, said goodbye and parted ways, she changed her Twitter bio. And previously, her Twitter bio just said that she was homeless in Chicago. And now her Twitter bio said that she was homeless in Chicago, but she uh, had spoken at the 140 Characters Conference, and she is also being featured in the Twitter documentary. I was very moved by that because there were I have many, many friends who are constantly speaking at conferences and being featured in one thing or another. And I know that they would never bother to put it in their bio. But I think to me, the fact that she changed her bio means that there's a shift in her identity and there's a shift in her consciousness. And I think at, in that moment, I felt that if the only thing the film or the, and the making of the film accomplished was to give this person hope, it would have been entirely worth all my effort and all the efforts of the people on Twitter. So I was very moved by that. And I think, I think in that moment, I, I understand that I think it's not just that we are representing ourselves to the world on social media, but we're also constantly reinventing ourselves and trying to find a voice and fashion an evolving identity on social media. And, and I think she was a very stark case of how that can be possible. So after making the film, you launched the film, you distributed. I remember that screenings everywhere, everywhere in the world. I remember you tweeted about in Israel, in San Francisco, in Singapore. How many screenings do you think that the film has been distributed? And how many people have you touched? And what's the impact of the film to the people out there for you? I think, I think the, we did about 50 screenings across the world, in Europe, North America, and Asia. And the unique thing about the screenings is that the screenings were all set up, are all crowdsourced as well. They were set up by Twitter users who heard about the film and wanted to support the film. And the other thing that's unique about the film was that we did a dual screen kind of projection. Every screening has the documentary projection, the screening movie projection. But next to the documentary, we will also have a live Twitter wall. So it, it, during the screening, the, the people in the audience will be interacting amongst themselves on Twitter, but they're also tweeting to the people in the film and interacting with them and getting to know them. In fact, some of them will start following the characters in the film on Twitter and follow their stories beyond the, the confines of the film, the linear format of the film. So I think those were things that were quite innovative in that time to do crowdsource screenings across the world and also to do real-time interaction during a screening. You know, I think at that time, people, I mean, it still happens now, you know, when you get into movie theater, one of the first things you are told to do is to switch off your mobile phone. So I think the audiences were thrilled that they're encouraged to keep their phones on and actually tweet, you know, during the, so I think it became kind of a guilty pleasure. And I, I think it gave the film a certain reputation. In fact, some people refer to the film as kind of the Rocky Horror Picture Show of the social media era. Rocky Horror Picture Show is kind of this cult movie where the audience participated a lot. You know, they would wear certain costumes and, and have certain props and had certain actions that they would do along with the film. So I think that's what is unique about the film. I think the impact of the film is 
beyond my imagination because it is, you have to remember this is a little film that's kind of initiated by me who is like just like one person and trying to rally people across the world to support the project. I think the impact of the film, several fold. I think first of all, the making of the film has been made, written into a case study by a Singapore Management University professor called Michael Nestle. And it's actually has been taught across the world in classrooms for MBA students, journalism students, in civil service college and all that to as a case study in social media and innovation. So that's very meaningful to me, the fact that it should be taught in schools because it means that it has a certain value in terms of helping us understand this era that we've been thrust into, this era of kind of this human connection across the world, across time zone and across geographic boundaries. That's really quite bewildering if you come to think about it, that you can really have be instant messaging someone or that you can actually feel this deep connection with a stranger, someone you've never met. I think the other impact or I think legacy, part of the legacy of the film is the fact that to me, I think most filmmakers are, are very caught up in whether a film is technically perfect, our production values high, you know, and other things like that, uh, or what other filmmakers think of the film. <laughs> I think for me, the most important wish I had for Twitter, the Twitter film, is really that it should become a time capsule. I think it should really, I think my hope has always been that, you know, 50 years from now or 20 years from now, people will refer to the film as one of the documents that capture that singular moment when social media became part of the mainstream experience. And I think I was very privileged to have had been in, I guess, in the right place at the right time to, to document it. And I, I think now, even just like five, six years later, I still get tweeted by people, by strangers. And the film is being referred to as a film about early Twitter, about the very beginnings of social media as part of mainstream existence. So I, I think the fact that uh, the film's legacy is that it is a document. It captures the zeitgeist of a certain moment that can never be repeated, repeated again. And that it should have value, I think, in terms of illuminating our understanding of how social media amplifies our humanity in both the best and worst senses of the word, I think has a great meaning to me. You also have a lot of challenges in getting the finance to make the film. I mean, that is pre-Kickstarter and pre-crowdfunding days. You, here's the question for you. If you were to make this film, say, in 2013 when Kickstarter just started, do you think that would have solved most of the issues on financing? Or um, you would even make a bigger and better production? I think the answer to the question is yes. I think the fact that there's a funding mechanism would make possible contributions to funding. I think like when I was crowdsourcing the film, a lot of the contributions were in kind. Like People volunteered their time in various ways from, you know, fixing a story for me or organizing a screening or doing the, the, the filming for free or producing and, and all that. So I had a lot of in-kind contributions from across the world, which I'm eternally grateful for. I think Kickstarter would really have helped in terms of 
kind of direct contribution in terms of money. And I think it would also be very good in terms of building a community of support around the film. So, you know, obviously, I think obviously it was very different when when I started making the film and, and it was really about, I think, I think I was quite naive when I was announced the project. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I think people always think of now with the convenience of technology, people always think that to crowdsource or crowdfund something is really easy. You just kind of stand on the soapbox and yell at the top of your voice and then people will help you. But I think that, I think it, I think the Twitter film is one of the hardest things I've ever done in my entire life. And I think the reason is because crowdsourcing and to some extent crowdfunding is difficult because you have to cut through all the noise because you you have to. There are a lot of competing projects and competing ideas that you have to contend with, and I think also because you have to not just be a great storyteller and, and filmmaker in the traditional sense, but you also have to be a great storyteller in terms of telling a great story about the making of the film. You know, so it's not just about telling this is a great story. I'm. I'm making a film about, but rather by being, by supporting me, by being a part of this process, you're becoming a part of a, a wonderful narrative about a human connection and how people can come together to tell stories about humanity on Twitter. So, so it is very difficult because it, it really takes a great deal of effort and a great deal of skill in terms of telling that met, what I call the meta story, the larger story about the stro- the making of the story. So I, but I learned a lot. I, I guess if if I had the been making the film in 2013, on some levels it would be easier, but at this, on some level it will not probably be as emblematic. You know, because I think part of the, the one of the legends of the film was that it was made so early you know, before most people know what crowdfunding is and what crowdsourcing is. And I think also, there's also less of a fatigue because if you have every other person trying to crowdfund something, there's always a fatigue that kicks in. But I think in the early days, people tend to give you a bit of a benefit of the doubt because they don't have every other friend trying to crowdfund and crowdsource a film. Would you think that you could have made a um, sequel or even now maybe it's called the WeChat entry where we people do WeChat as well. Have you ever uh, thought about that? Yeah, I, I, I've thought about that a lot. I, I think that a sequel to the film or an update to the film, I've thought about that a lot. I think, especially because I'm based in China, there are also suggestions to do. At first, it was Weibo Mentry, <laughs> because mm-hmm. Weibo is the Twitter of China. Yeah. Everyone was like cornering me and saying, you should make a Weibo doc- uh, Mentry. And now it's WeChat Mentry. So I joke, and then I was, so at one point I was joking that I will have a Mentry franchise. You'll be Instagram Mentry, and you'll be WeChat Mentry. So you'll, and you'll be Weibo Mentry. So you'll always seem like I have a stutter, you know. <laughs> I think that is a great idea to do a follow-up to the Twitter film. And I've thought a lot about it. I think I haven't quite wrapped my head around what form you'll take. I, the 10th anniversary of Twitter is, the 10th birthday of Twitter is coming up in about, uh, really about six or seven months time. And it will be very meaningful to do something uh, in the lead up to it. I don't know, quite know 
what form you'll take though. I, I've always wanted to make a global film about Twitter. I've also always wanted to make a film that explores the dark side of Twitter because I think that side of Twitter has become much more evident in the year since uh, uh, 2012 since I, I finished screening the film. Mm. You know, the whole idea of uh, internet bullying trolling, the invasion of privacy has become a lot more. I think you have much more case studies to really that really highlights that. So I'm, I'm quite interested in that. But I think other mentries, like WeChatamentry and things like that, I always think that the form must befit the content. You know, I think if I were to crowdsource something again or crowdfund something again, it must make sense within the larger creative idea. Because you can't just repeat an idea without reference to context. So I think WeChat, for example, is a closed platform. So it wouldn't make much sense to crowdsource a film about a closed platform. Or I can make a, a traditional film about WeChat, you know, but, but I don't know how, how exciting that would be, mm. you know, and how it will extend our understanding of, of the impact of WeChat in China. I think in short... I'll be very keen to do a sequel to Twitter Mentry and then do an update to the film. I think that the Mentry franchise, like anything else, could still happen in the future, but I'm not sure what the next Mentry will be yet. <laughs> okay, but I think you are very busy now because you are running a startup. And to start is that when I first met you, I have to actually get intros from you. You are very close to the tech community in China. You have actually ended up going to the tech side which is well actually not really the intersection between tech and media and it's also involved with one of my previous guests uh william balbin mm -hmm. so you started a company called kinetic one mm -hmm. right you want to talk about what got you started and how you end up becoming a ceo of a tech media company in the uh, past i i think that for me connected kinetic one is one of those things that happen because i i feel uh, i think especially with all the mythology about startups and startup founders people always think that there's some sort of conscious plan you know that i set in singapore and then i thought that china is a very big market and i should just go to china and yeah. and launch a startup but things rarely happen in this neat linear format we were talking about the twitter documentary and i think one of the big lessons i i got from making the film is the importance of community i think the one i had been in television before and I think the one thing that separates content creation and for television and film and that for online and social media is really the sense that there's a community that you're building and the community is an important thing. So I think the reason why I started Kinetic One was because I, I was plugged into a community, uh, the tech community through social media and it was really because I I found my tribe and I connected with people who were bloggers, developers, investors, startup founders that quite organically the opportunity came to, to launch a video startup. And I think I also have a rather unique kind of place in the Chinese tech community because I'm one of the few filmmakers in the tech community that uh, most people in the, the tech space knows. So in a way, it's kind of like being the the pink elephant, you know? <laughs> so it's like, if you think of a coder, a developer, you know, there are tons, you know, if you think of an investors, there are many. And if you think of uh, someone who's tech 
kind of CEO that many, but I am one of the only, I think I'm one of the, the only known filmmakers with significant video creation ability in China. So I think the reason for Southern Connected was because I became part of tech community. There was an opportunity in the video space and I think quite naturally the different things came together for me to launch a startup. So I think it's a very interesting experience for me but because it was never my dream to to run a tech startup, I never thought I could do it. I always thought that it wasn't something that is in my, I, I guess in my future or in my destiny. What I find interesting, though, because we're talking so much about my documentary making experience, is that there's actually a very close parallel to between making a documentary, especially in the independent sense, uh, independent film, and running a startup. Because every movie is a startup. Every film is a startup. You take an idea and really basically turn nothing into something. And you have to put together a team that believes in the idea and you have to be able to do all the things and to do really do a lot with very little. So I think one of the reasons why I've kind of been able to persevere as a startup founder is because I, I'm so used to being poor and desperate <laughs> as a documentary filmmaker. It doesn't seem, it doesn't surprise me at all. Uh-huh. To me, it's just a norm. It's a normal life. So I, I, I think it, it's very fascinating to me that all the kind of the street fighting skills I've kind of learned as a documentary filmmaker came in very handy when I'm running a, a startup in China. So how does Kinetic One operate? As in, how does it work as a social video platform in China? Well, I think Kinetic One, um, we, we really... Essentially, what we're doing is really to run multiple uh, content verticals or video channels across the Chinese internet. So internationally, the, this model is called the multi-channel network. Essentially, there are players on YouTube like Maker Studio, Awesomeness TV... Uh, style hall, tastemaker, and things like that. So essentially, they run hundreds or even thousands of channels and try to do the creative development and business development for those channels. What we're trying to do in China is really to run multiple channels online, each focus on really reaching a very targeted audience, whether it's a youthful audience or a women audience or male audience and things like that. So... I think what we're trying to do is really to essentially bring together content making, video making with kind of the distribution system or syndication system that has been made possible by social media, which is really not kind, it's not kind of, it's different from TV where it's broadcast and you have a fixed time for everything. I think what it is, is really through, I think the two key ways for social video to to be discovered is really through search and through social media sharing. Mm. So that that's what we do. We, we we run multiple channels online. We essentially get brand sponsorship for for the shows that we do. And we also do some form of revenue share with the video platforms. Uh, and in China there are many, not just one. So there's a Yoku Tudo, Sohu, Qi and Le TV and many others. And of course, in the future, I, I believe that there's a great opportunity for what we call content to e-commerce or video to e-commerce, which means that 
as people watch a video, they would also have the option to click through and purchase something that has been featured in the video. So essentially, that's what that's the business model for Kinetic One to run a multi-channel network across the Chinese internet and really try to create, I, I guess, a, a new form of content that is really web native, you know, not kind of putting TV content online, but rather to make content for the internet and for the millennial audience, a young audience that has, I don't know about you, but I, I've, I've not watched TV in almost 10 years. So, so essentially, we're all watching our content online now. Mm. And and China is a very fascinating market for that, a very challenging market for that. Yeah, so, you, there are two challenges. So one is actually what happens to when you deal with content that actually violate the rules of the Chinese government. So how do, how do you tackle against all these kind of challenges? In terms of censorship, I, I feel that there are a number of things that do act as a buffer. One of, one of it is because we our content is mainly syndicated through video platforms, Yoku, Tudo, and Ti. So in a way, they act as a buffer in terms of the, the management of content and censorship of the content. I think the other thing is also because Kinetic One itself is a very, is at, at its heart, a commercial endeavor. So it's different from my personal work, you know, where I might make films about a certain topic because it fascinates me or moves me. So I think most of the films or genres of films that that we make are not really likely to run into trouble with the censorship. Mm-hmm. I think the other factor is also because we are running, you remember, very targeted channels. So mm-hmm. in China, you probably know that as a rule, if you are this massive mainstream movie, you get a lot of scrutiny. But if you are very specialized and quite niche and you reach a targeted audience, you tend to get away with a lot more. Mm. So I think that's also, it's very selective, I think, in terms of how content is filtered and censored. And and I think it takes a while in China to kind of get a sense of how the system works. But I think you can get away with an amazing amount if you know how things work in China. Mm. So it's a little bit of a long tail kind of targeting in terms yes, of the audience it's selection. Very, it's very long tail targeted content. And so it's really it's really for the web. It's really for people to search, discover, share and connect around a piece of content or a number of pieces of content. Mm. In that sense, China actually have been pretty interesting for social media because one thing I remember watching was one of your mainstream TV shows, something very similar to Pop Idol in the US. But what I saw in that show was the use of social media as a part of the voting system. This mm-hmm. could never have worked in the US market. And that mm-hmm. was something that really sort of captured how social media is being integrated into the mainstream even without that. It's almost like China has never started the TV industry. They started off with a social media and a mainstream media TV industry at the same time. And they allowed that to coexist and monetize from it. Is that I, the I think I think that, that because of the size of the market and the kind of dollars that are at stake, I think there's a great deal of innovation in terms of the integration of TV and social media. And I think I think what you see is really that, for example, Zhongguo uh, Haosheng or The Voice in China, you see a lot of the different ways 
in which social media or new media is integrated with kind of TV. So that's the social media voting that you're talking about. But you also find various online video shows that are produced, for example, a chat show about about this episode that of Chi- uh, The Voice China. So there are a lot of spin-offs. I mean, probably people who are followers of uh, US TV will know that. I think that is the show Walking Dead. I think there's a chat show about Walking Dead that's online. That's aired right after The Walking Dead is has been aired on television. So I think there's a lot of... I mean, there's even a radio franchise of The Voice China. So I think there are many ways in which the uh, a certain content franchise get uh, kind of reincarnated and integrated with multiple media platforms and including social media and online video and radio podcasts radio etc so it's extremely dynamic and and I think increasingly we'll find that that will be the case because I think for the audience it doesn't matter much where we're watching the content as as long as we get to watch the content that we want so I think for example in the US, you see that with late night talk shows, uh, there's been a major shift. I think in the past, people were expected to watch late night talk show like The Tonight Show on TV. But now you find that a lot of the talk shows are actually, their goal is to actually get kind of segments of the show, short clips of the show to go viral on, t- on the internet. Because that's probably where most of the audience watch the show. You know, they watch three minutes or five minutes that go viral on the internet. No one watches the entire hour or two hours or three hours. But it doesn't matter because I think the new media incarnation of the show will kind of support and integrate with the TV version of the show. And I think going forward, I think the lines and boundaries will become blurred and also will become less and less significant. Because ultimately... I want a sim- seamless experience as an audience. I want to, and you want to be ubiquitous, whether it's on the mobile phone, on online video, on TV, or on social media. And that's the way it's going to be. I don't want to think five times about whether I'm watching TV or am I watching it online. I just want to catch my favorite show. Mm. So I think that's the way it's going to be. Wow. So I think that, that we probably will have to chat again about the state of media and also what's gonna what what are you doing in China or maybe your next big project. So 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 help my audience, how do they find you? they can find me on mo uh, on Twitter and everywhere I guess on and on Weibo as well. Mm-hmm. And on WeChat actually at Siok Siok, S-I-O-K, S-I-O-K. I also have very active Instagram presence. Yes. <laughs> I plague my friends with my photos. And the my Instagram ID is S-I-O-K, the number two, X. So it's Siok two times on Instagram. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that it would be great to connect. For Kinetic One, the, the web URL is K-I-N-E-T-I-C-O-N-E dot com. And of, I have my own site as well as tansyoksyok.com, T-A-N-S-I-O-K, S-I-O-K.com. Mm. And you also have a WeChat presence too, I presume. Yes, Syoksyok, yeah, S-I-O-K, S-I-O-K. I, nothing gets done in China without WeChat. 
<laughs> so it's no longer a choice. <laughs> yeah. And you can find me at bleongcw or at bernardleong.com or subscribe to us at iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud. Uh, please leave a rating, one star to five star. It's always great to get some feedback. And so, so once again, thank you for coming on the show and I definitely would want to chat with you again. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's always a pleasure.